well, our sermon text this morning uh, is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And this is our practice. If you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The sense of ring of God's word you use. So let's pray and briefly and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. O Lord our God, we know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. And so we ask that you would teach us your word, feed your flock, and let us be doers of your word and not hearers on and deceiving ourselves. Grant unto us that this day we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I mentioned already a couple times today is Ascension Sunday, which is the reason I picked the text uh, that we're looking at this morning. Uh, You might know that it is uh, one of the things mentioned that we recite and confess together every time we confess and recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And so the Ascension of Christ is, not only is it mentioned in Scripture a number of times, but it is... Uh, an essential truth of the Christian faith, if you were to get rid of it in some way, you'd have something less than Christianity. And I think it's not hard to say that uh, the ascension of Christ, that the truth of it, the doctrines related to it, it's one of the most neglected truths in the lives of many Christians today, and I think it probably has been for quite some time. Um, You would probably be surprised, maybe some of you, how often the Bible uh, mentions his ascension. Uh, the writers of the New Testament refer to it dozens of times. It would be difficult to count the number of times uh, accurately. How many times the writers of the New Testament mention the ascension of Christ in some way and draw their doctrines and exhortations from it? You might know the book of Acts that we're looking at right now this morning, as well as the book of Revelation. Now, you, you cannot understand either of those books at all, really, apart from a knowledge of the ascension of Christ. They don't make sense without Christ's ascension. You know, the the book of Acts, we're going to see this morning uh, from this first passage in the whole book, uh, it's it's really about the acts of Christ, the ongoing doings and teachings of Christ. 
the book of Revelation, it starts off, I think it's in verse 5, it mentions Christ as the, the ruler of the kings on the earth. And the rest of the book kind of bears that out. He's ruling over all the events throughout history on behalf of his church. Uh, the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts, which the first chapter kind of sets the stage for, the, you know, you, you'd have to call it really a miraculous spread of the gospel. It goes from Jerusalem, just like verse 8 says, to from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth in a very short order. Humanly speaking, it should have been impossible. Humanly speaking, it would have been impossible because Jesus is with his church always to the end of the age. That's why the gospel spread the way it did, even in the face of great persecution and suffering and affliction uh, that the church endured. And so this morning, I know my normal way of preaching is typically to go in order, verse by verse, right down to the passage. We're going to look at the whole passage, Lord willing, but we're going to unpack it a little bit differently today. I hope that won't be confusing at all. Uh, rather than going right through the passage in order, I think what we're going to do, hopefully, is look at what it has to tell us in a kind of a logical order, a logical order of sorts. So we're going to look at three things today, Lord willing. Uh, and the first of those is the indicative or the fact of the ascension of Christ, the indicative of the ascension of Christ, uh, the implications of the ascension of Christ, and then the imperative of Christ's ascension. In other words, that we are called to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. So the first thing is the indicative or the fact of the ascension of Christ. And we see it, it doesn't spell it out in so many, so many terms, but in verses 1 through 2, what does Luke say there in verses 1 through 2? He says, uh, this, he talks about the first book that he wrote. What book is that? The Gospel of Luke. He says that the Gospel of Luke, that first book, is, quote, about, quote, all that Jesus began to do and to teach, and then what does it say? Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke basically just kind of in passing mentions the ascension of Christ, that, that the first gospel was about everything Jesus began to do and teach until what point? His ascension. And what does it imply about the rest of the book of Acts? It's everything after the ascension, of course, but it's about what Jesus continued to do and to teach after that, which we'll look at that a little bit later uh, in, our, in our sermon this morning. Look at verse 9. There he kind of spells it out, the actual event. It says, when he had said, he is Jesus there, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. <laughs> Now, it's important that we have the biblical account and record of Christ's ascension. We, we kind of take these things for granted, I think, at times, and it's nice that we can do that. But Calvin writes the following about this account. He says, now our Lord's ascension will only be profitable to us if we are sure that it really happened. Accordingly, Luke relates that the apostles saw him ascend, and he adds that they remained standing until they were told to stay no longer but to return to Jerusalem to exercise their ministry as they have been commanded. Indeed, to the very last day, uh, at the end of the earth, Luke thus records our Lord's ascension so that it should not be called into question. There's a reason we have historical, historical accounts and narratives in the scriptures, because history matters. Things that happen matter. They are the foundation of our faith and even of the message of the gospel. 
And you might know that scoffers and skeptics, both outside as well as inside the visible church at times, do tend to call such things into question. <clears throat> even things like Christ's resurrection, even his death, have been called into question by skeptics and scoffers inside and outside the church. You know, sometimes they deny them outright and just say those things never actually happened. Sometimes they say that the actual history of things don't matter. It's just the, you know, the inward spiritual truth or notion of something is what matters. They make these things into nothing more than metaphors or inspiring stories. But as Christians, we have to be very clear and very certain that Christ's death for our sins, his resurrection, his bodily resurrection from the dead on the third day, and even his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, are the reality and stubborn facts of actual history. These things actually happen. If, if these things didn't happen, we should not be here. If, if these things didn't actually take place, and Christ did not die for our sins and rise from the grave and ascend to the right hand of God, we're wasting <coughs> our time worshiping this morning. We, have, we should just be sleeping in and doing whatever the world tends to do. Uh, on, on a Sunday. After all, Christianity, you might know, is a historical religion. Now, that word sometimes, you, when you hear historical, sometimes you think it just means it's it's got a long history. It's a very important religion. It's more than that. It's, it's historical in the sense that it's founded in history. It's grounded and firmly rooted in actual history. The things that happen in the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, those things matter there is no true Christianity without those things happening. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, I think we looked at that on Easter Sunday, in verses 3 and 4, what does Paul say about the death and resurrection of Christ? He says, these things are of first importance. He said, I delivered to you what I also received that are of first, you know, primary importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was raised, uh, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Those things are the chief, main importance, uh, primary things of the Christian faith, and they all involve facts and events in real history. Well, that leads us to our second point, the implications. The implications of Christ's ascension. Why, why does it matter, besides the fact that it happened? Why does Christ's ascension to the right hand of God matter? What is the significance and importance of that great fact of history and the history of our redemption. You know, we're only going to scratch the surface of that question this morning. We can't go into every last detail. We're going, to, we're going to focus mainly on what this passage has to say about it. But if I were to ask you this morning, what is Jesus doing right now? What would you say? I remember in my past, in my, in my dispensational years, I wouldn't have thought he was doing much. I certainly wouldn't have thought much about him reigning over all things for the sake of this church. Maybe that's true of some of you in your past as well. But he is quite active right now. He's doing things even now for our salvation and for the building of his kingdom. He's not just sitting around waiting for, for his return to consummate his kingdom. Maybe you say to yourself, well, he's gone to prepare a place for us in heaven. You know, we think of things he's doing in heaven, and we don't often think of what he's doing that affects things on the earth. Now John 14, 2 through 3 says this, Jesus says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have told, would, I, uh, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's true. 
He certainly is doing that right now, preparing a place for us. Now, maybe you think of his ongoing ministry of intercession or prayer on our behalf. Hebrews 7.25, we already read that this morning. It says, consequently, as a result, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them, for you, for me. He's interceding for us even now, and it's because of that intercession at God's right hand that he is able to save us to the uttermost, to the very last degree. He does not leave our salvation to stop short at any, any point. But what if I told you the entire book of Acts is primarily about what Jesus did after he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God? The title of the book of Acts, as you may know, in most of our Bibles, mine even says, The Acts of the Apostles. And it's not wrong. The title wasn't written by, by Luke. You know, we, we add those things in our Bibles. They're not inspired, the titles in most of these books. And it's not, it's not wrong as far as it goes. When you read Acts, who do you read about? Peter and Paul and, and others uh, preaching the gospel and what they did. Uh, but what, what is it really about? When you read the book of Acts, you're reading about the, the doings and the teachings of Christ. In fact, if you were to read through, this will be your homework. It's only 28 chapters long. Uh, before you eat lunch, you know, take, take some time when you're Bible reading and read through the book of Acts and notice how many times Jesus literally shows up on the page. You think of Stephen being stoned to death uh, before Saul's conversion. And who does he see standing up at the right hand of God before he's stoned to death? He sees Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. And it drove the crowd into a frenzy, and they stoned him to death. They, they could not bear to hear that Christ really was who he said he was, that he died for our sins, rose from the grave, and was reigning at God's right hand. And the Stephen, this man they hated, saw him standing for him. When you have Paul, Saul of Tarsus, rather, at the time, uh, his conversion, who do you have showing up on the page? Jesus, knocking him off his high horse, blinding him, and saving him. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He's on the page. Later on in, in Paul's own sufferings for the gospel, it says that, that the Lord Jesus stood by Paul. He was assuring him he was going to get to where he was supposed to go. Jesus shows up every once in a while on the pages of the book of Acts to remind us who's doing the doings and who's really doing the teaching around here. Through his church. He is the reason that the gospel spread and the church was built and defended. Look closely again at what Luke says in the very first verse of this book. It's really a key verse. Verse 1 and verse 8 are really the key verses in the book of Acts. In verse 1 it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, and it's very specific, all that Jesus began to do and teach. You know, when, when I read that, you know, off the cuff without thinking, my brain sort of mistranslates it as something like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus did and taught. But it's not, it would have been accurate, wouldn't it? But it's not what he says. And really it's an elliptical statement. He's implying something about this book when he says that. All that Jesus began to do and teach before his ascension. And the implication is, and it bears out in the rest of the book, that the book of Acts is, is kind of the, 
part two of, of the book of Luke. And it's about the continuing doings and teachings of the risen and ascended Christ in building his church. Now, how? I've already mentioned he shows up on the page here and there throughout the book. How is Jesus still doing and teaching in the book of Acts? He does it through his church, through his apostles, by the work of the Holy Spirit mediating his presence through them. Where the gospel goes forth with power, it's because people are hearing the voice of their shepherd. His sheep hear his voice, they know his voice, they recognize it, and they follow him. And the gospel is the weapon he's using to conquer his enemies. So when you see the apostles preaching the word of God and the gospel, and you see people coming to believe, sometimes by the thousands, why is that? It's because Jesus is gathering and building his church. He is the one working through the preaching of his word by the work of his Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this about, about the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is still active. It is what he does that matters, not what we do. And the message of the Christian church is not only one of what he has done, but what he is doing. He is going on. He is still working. And the book of Acts tells us about the further acts of Jesus. Some people say it ought to be called the acts of the Holy Spirit. That is quite wrong. It is Jesus who dominates. Uh, Dennis Johnson, my former professor at Westminster, wrote a book on the book of Acts, a terrific book. He says, Luke's story from beginning to end is the story of the acts and teachings of Jesus. This is the first thing Luke wants us to know about the church. Jesus is still at work here and now. It's in the first verse. He wants to remind us that Jesus is quite active right now, in and through and for sake of his church. Now, Matthew 16, 18 should have been a hint of this. That's the text we, we mentioned a lot. What does it say there? Jesus says, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, my mistranslation of my brain. When I read that, I often think the church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He doesn't say that. He that implies it. He says, I will build my church. Who is right now actively building his church? Jesus is. That is the picture painted for us in the book of Acts and elsewhere in Scripture, that Jesus is right now building his church and no matter how it may look at the time, the gates of hell cannot and are not prevailing against him. He is on the offense. They are on defense. To the eyes of the flesh, it often seems the opposite, doesn't it? Because we, we often feel like we're on the defense. We pray for the church in Canada, the church in China, sometimes the church here. And it feels like we're on defense. Because humanly speaking, we are. But Jesus, he does defend his church, but he's on the offense. His gospel is on the offense. It's making his enemies, his footstool, it's conquering all the nations by his word and by his spirit working through his church. Jesus is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, as he tells us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And he has promised there to be with us always in our task of making disciples of all the nations. And what does that mean? He's not just saying, good luck out there, boys. You know, go preach the gospel. Nothing's going to happen. Now, I'll be watching, make sure nothing bad happens. No, he's implying and telling us disciples are going to be made. People are going to believe the gospel when they hear it. Not all of them, maybe not most of them, but many of them will hear 
and believe and be saved and added to his church. Disciples will be made, and if, it was, if he wasn't with us, they wouldn't. The gospel would be a hopeless proposition for us to preach. So no matter how it may look at times, the gates of hell are still helpless to prevail against the gospel of Christ. Christ is still the one building his church, and the gates of hell cannot stop him from doing it. The ascension, among other things, it's the enthronement of Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is far from inactive during the span of between his ascension and his return in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the book of Acts is to be understood as the inspired record of the ongoing teachings and doings of Christ himself through his spirit working through his church. And so we are not alone as we carry out the work of the Great Commission. Our missionaries we pray for from week to week are not alone in the carrying out of the Great Commission. Christ not only commands us to go and make disciples of all the nations, uh, but in all that work he is with us, what does he say? Always, even to the end of the age. And so that's why his church will be built and gathered and defended. And that brings us to the third and final point uh, this morning, and that is the imperative of the ascension of Christ, that we are called to be witnesses of Christ. That's the work of the church. That's now our work. That is the the the, the imperative, the command that follows after Christ's ascension. It is the main imperative uh, resulting from it. What does he say? It says, you know, Jesus in verse 4 commanded the apostles, what? Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. What, what promise was that? The promise of the baptism, verse 5, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church that we see in chapter 2 at Pentecost. And even so, here we see the reason for that command. The Spirit is the one, the Holy Spirit, is the one who would enable us to be Christ's witnesses to the end of the earth. In other words, he doesn't just say, go and make disciples of all the nations. As important as that is, he tells them to wait, because if they do it on their own, nothing good is going to happen. Disciples will not be made, the church will not be built, and the book of Acts will be rather short. He says, wait until the Spirit is poured out upon the church. Look at look at verses 6 through 8. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. I've already mentioned, I think, at least once, that is an outline of the whole book of Acts. Because what do you see in the book of Acts? The gospel starting where? Where he told them not to leave yet. Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in all Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And you have in the gospel, in the, in the book of Acts rather, the gospel starting out in Jerusalem, going to Judea, going to Samaria, and where does it end up? Where is Paul at the end of the book? Rome. This is the spread of the gospel throughout the known world at the time. Now, receiving power from the Holy Spirit has to come first. And the result is then being witnesses for Christ to the ends of the earth. John 15, 5, there Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything. Certainly not build his church and make disciples of all 
the nations. If that's true of the apostles themselves, how much more is that true of us? Apart from Christ, we can't do, we can do nothing. But with Christ and by the power of his spirit, he makes us his witness. Now, what is a witness? A witness testifies to something or someone, and that should teach us what the church's primary task really is meant to be. Um, you know, we, we preach whatever the scripture says, uh, but our primary, our primary goal and task is not politics. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with politics. Uh, a lot of bad politics, but per se, nothing wrong with it. But that's not our main goal. Social justice is not our goal. As important as helping people is, and we should all do that, it is not the central mission of the church. The gospel and the Great Commission is. Our task, our primary work is to glorify God by testifying to Jesus Christ and his gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the church's commission. That's what he's commanded us to do. We are to testify to the power of the cross and resurrection of Christ to the ends of the earth. Now, that they would be his witnesses is the last thing that Jesus tells the disciples before his ascension. The timing of that should be significant. You know, we talk about famous last words. These aren't his last words, but the last thing he says right before he leaves is what they're to do. Go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what he tells them. Look at verse 8. He says, you know, they were going to receive power from the Holy Spirit to do what? To be his witnesses at the end of the earth. The very next verse, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Kind of hard to imagine a, a bigger shift in perspective than what took place in, in the disciples' minds and, and, and hearts between verses 6 and verse 9. They start off with Jesus telling them he's going to be with them and sticking around. To, you know, they're, they're asking him, are you going to stick around basically and restore the kingdom to Israel? And then he tells them, you've got a job to do, bye. And, and he leaves. You have to wonder what it must have been, what it, what it was that must have been going through their heads. Wait a minute, you just told us, you know, and, and he leaves. And, but that doesn't really tell us what they were thinking. Look, look at verses 10 to 11. It kind of tells us what they were thinking. It makes us kind of sympathize with them in some way. Uh, while they were gazing into heaven, you know, you can almost imagine their jaws dropping. They're looking up, wondering what is going on. As they're gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, we assume these are angels, right? Stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What are you standing around for? He's going, he's going to come back and you'll see him when he comes back. Right now you have work to do. What are you standing around looking up into heaven for? You know, it's, it's one of those uh, few places in scripture where I kind of get a chuckle every time I read it. You know, what are you standing around? What are you looking for? What do you mean, what are we looking for? We're seeing him go up. Uh, it kind of borders on, on comedic. I don't think it was intended to be funny, but I think God has a sense of humor. Uh, they had a job to do. That was his point. You know, one might think the sight of Jesus being taken up to heaven might lead the apostles to think that his promise to be with them until the end of the age didn't last very long. You have to you have to assume that they aren't that much different than us, that when they heard that, they might have been thinking he would bodily be staying there with them until the end of the age. You might, uh, you might excuse the disciples for thinking that the work of making disciples of all the nations just got a whole lot harder with Christ's ascension. Certainly they'd be much more bold to do it if he was standing there with them, but 
But quite the opposite is the case. Uh, John Calvin, in his Institutes, wrote the following about the ascension of Christ in regard to this. He says, Thus being received into heaven, he, Jesus, he removed his bodily presence from our sight, not so as to leave without help believers who still have to live on earth, but to rule the world with a power even more present than before. Certainly his promise to be with us to the end of the age has been fulfilled by his ascension. For as by it his body was lifted above the heavens, so its power and effectiveness reached far beyond all bounds of heaven and earth. You catch that? It doesn't just contradict his promise, it fulfills it. If Christ had not risen and ascended to the right hand of God, his promise to be with them to the end of the age could not have been fulfilled. He is, in a very real sense, not bodily, in a very real sense, more present than he was before, now that he has ascended. He's able to be with his church always, everywhere, throughout all time, because of his ascension. The Holy Spirit's presence and, and power is the way that the Lord is present and powerfully at work in his church. It's the way that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, and it's the way that he's with us in the work of making disciples of all the nations. You know, we aren't Pentecostals here, so-called, uh, but we should be in another sense. We should be sure that Christ has sent his Holy Spirit upon his church, and by his Holy Spirit he works in and through us. Uh, what is pleasing in his sight is by his Spirit working through the word in the gospel that he makes the, the nations his disciples through the ministry of the gospel in the church. So may the Lord Jesus Christ, who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, may he work in us uh, by his Holy Spirit that we might have the faith to trust that he really is with us as we bear witness to his gospel to the ends of the earth, that we might know that the gospel really is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Amen. Let's, let's pray.